All right, thank you. <clears throat> it really is an honor to be here, and I highly recommend the grandfather gig to everyone. Uh, how many grandfathers or grandmothers do we have here? Yeah, that is uh, nothing better, right? As soon as that dirty diaper happens, you send them home. <laughs> I made a vow that when my youngest son, who is now 28, uh, that was the last diaper, not at 28 when he was young, last diaper I would ever touch. And so far, five and a half years into the grandfather thing, I am keeping my vow to never change another diaper. I just call for help. I did enough when they were little. All right. Enough about that. It really is an honor to be here at Grace Covenant Church. And uh, Pastor Brett is not here and Pastor Cynthia. And I just want to say, I was asked to talk about leadership today. I was asked to talk, we're in a series on the Every Nation Core Values, and I just need to say this behind your pastor's back. He's not here, I'm going to talk about him. The best message I could give on leadership is to have Pastor Brett stand here and just point at him, okay? Um, I mean, really, we've worked together for over three decades, and I know of no greater leader. When I say greater, I mean according to Scripture. Uh, His humility, his servant's heart, his integrity, his graciousness, his generosity. And it really is an honor to work with your pastor. We're usually together at different places in the world. Um, I rarely see him here in America. Well, occasionally do, but we're bumping to each other around the world. He serves on our global international apostolic team overseeing our ministry in over 80 nations. And um, I want to say thank you to Grace Covenant Church for loaning your pastor to the rest of the world. And what this church is doing to impact the world is phenomenal. You're a part of something that is not only impacting this community and not only this nation. You just heard you're planting churches all over America, but also all over the world. I get to see your work in Africa when I go, what people from this church are doing to serve the least of these um, in, in orphanages. And I, 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 I just so appreciate how this church is taking the Great Commission seriously. So give yourself and your pastor a big hand. <clears throat> As I said, I was asked to talk about leadership development. And in every nation, you're going through a series on our core values. And when we talk about leadership development, sometimes we tend to think, well, that might mean someone else and not me. Maybe you're like me, and here's how it's happened in my life. Every leadership position I've ever had, it's like a bunch of people, it's like that cartoon, a bunch of people lined up, and they say, whoever wants this job, step forward. I've never stepped forward. Problem is, everybody else stepped backwards, (laughs) and I was the one standing there. And uh, Pastor Brett and I have talked about those kind of situations because he's been in the same situation. And if you aspire for leadership, that's a good thing, the Scripture says. But even if you don't, you're going to find yourself in leadership positions and leadership situations. And we're going to see a story today in the Bible. Some of you are familiar with the story, some of you are not. But the leader we're going to look at in Scripture today, there are multiple reasons why this person should not have been a leader. And I know when we talk about leadership, a lot of us start thinking of all the reasons why we're not leaders and we cannot be leaders and we should not be leaders. And maybe it's five years from now or three years from now, or maybe it's sometime in the future. 
This person right here was the wrong gender to be a leader. We're going to talk about a female in a masculine-dominated world from several thousand years ago. This person was a teenager in a world that honored age and ignored youth. This girl's family disqualified her from being a leader. She was an orphan. Both of her parents died, and she was raised by a relative. Her ethnicity was wrong. She was a despised minority in a nation, in a culture that looked down on and hated the ethnicity she was. Her religion was wrong. She was Jewish in a world that had a completely different religion that was in opposition. Her status was wrong. She was a foreigner, what we would call today a refugee, in a nation that did not like her people. All of that caused her to grow up in poverty. Now, are those enough reasons not to be a leader? Not to think of ourselves as leaders? Some of you tick almost every one of those boxes. Some of you, maybe that doesn't apply to you, maybe one or two do. But wherever you are, there will always be a list of reasons why you do not need to take the responsibility of leadership. It'll always be there. And so let's see what she did. Some of you know I'm talking about Esther. We're going to look in the Bible, Esther chapter 4, and we'll read verses 10 through 16. And then I'm going to go backwards and fill in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. We're not going to finish the rest of the book, but in our few minutes we have here, we want to, here's the heart of the story, and then I'll tell you the significance of it, and we'll see how this applies to us. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him, and in verse 10, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, so Esther sending her messenger to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, or for three days night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Now, this is the time, remember the book of Daniel when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember those stories? They were dragged from Israel into Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And you think about the Middle Eastern wars of the uh, Iraq and Iran, the Persians and the Babylonians fighting against the Jews. That's not really something that came up in our generation. This goes back thousands of years. 
And so the Babylonians or the Iraqis have taken over, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, torn the walls down and captured people and dragged them against their will into a new culture. That's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys. A generation later, Persia, Iran, attacks Babylon, Iraq. And now, now the Persians are in charge. And that's where we pick up this story. Nehemiah, Ezra, they're back now rebuilding the walls and fixing Jerusalem. But some people were still captive. They were still stuck uh, where their ancestors were taken captive. That's where this comes in. These are the Jews. This is the days of Esther. Persia is now ruling. Interesting thing about, about the book of Esther. It's an odd thing. It's the only book of all 66 books in the Bible that never mentions God. It never mentions a name for God. It never makes a reference to God. It talks about fasting, but never mentions God. And, and I was talking the other day with a Christian businessman from a godly businessman in Nashville, and they're starting a new business on top of his others. And he said, now, he said, now we're not going to put a fish on our business card or on the sign, but we're using biblical principles. And I thought, you know, so often we think that we've got to go stick a fish or a cross on everything in order to be Christian. But I think the way we pay people and the way we treat people and the integrity that we go about our business speaks a lot louder than sticking things on the logo. And while God's not mentioned in Esther, you see the providence of God, the fingerprints of God in every paragraph, in every chapter, in every page. God is all over this. Now, here's what happens. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the first of four characters that play a pivotal role, and that's the king. He's known as... Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and the ESV, the one I'm reading from, he's known as Ahasuerus. Now this guy, this king, rules 127 provinces, but, and it's going to be hard the way I say this, but he doesn't rule his wife. I know ruling your wife is not really a thing now. Back in those days it was. That was sort of the measure of a man. We're talking several millennia ago in the ancient Middle East, and if you couldn't rule your wife, you were less than. He rules 127 provinces, but in chapter 1, he calls his wife into a party, Queen Vashti, and she says, no, I'm not going. And so he, he convenes the council, like his cabinet, and they decide this cannot happen because, they say in chapter 1, all the other wives will hear that your wife rebelled, and now our wives will start acting like that. So they're terrified. Some of you men may feel like that. I go to work and I'm ruling 127 departments and I got staff and all this and I go home and I'm handed the garbage bag. <laughs> I'm not going any further on that train of thought, but he's ruling to 127 provinces, but he can't rule his wife. So they say, this can't happen in this kingdom. You know what they do? They fire the queen and they tell this king Let's have a beauty contest and find you a new queen. All right, that, this is what's happening. Now, before you start thinking, and I know the book of Esther has been sort of Disneyized. Is that a word, Disneyized? <laughs> Where 
all the young ladies just dreamed one day of being the queen to this dirty old man. (laughs) Just get Disney out of this. Because this is a horrible thought. This is a violent, vicious, bloody, lustful, dirty old man. But they do this pageant. And I, I can't imagine the horror of having what they went through. And I won't get too graphic, but as you read it, you see that these are, this guy has a parade of girls for his one-night stands. And then he picks the one he wants. We would call it today human trafficking. We would call it today even child trafficking because of the age of some of these girls. Sometimes we need to take the Disney lenses off when we read Scripture. And it's as modern as a lot of what goes on in the news today. Chapter 2 introduces us to this guy who's known mostly through this passage as the Jew. And many times that was derogatory in those days. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai was a Jewish exile in Persia. Like all the other Jew, or most of the Jewish exiles there, they didn't have any position of prestige and they were living in poverty and they were looked down upon and they were the despised ethnic and religious and cultural and social minority. He was the one who raised his orphaned, sometimes it's his, he's seen as the cousin, sometimes the uncle, the, the translated words are a little vague sometimes, but he's a relative and he's raising Esther because her parents died. This Mordecai, the Jew, happens to overhear a plot to assassinate the king and he reports it and saves the king's life. King's never met him. It's just recorded in the history book and the annals of the king and it's put away and filed. It comes back later on in the story. I think most Jews would have been glad to see that king killed. But Mordecai, his integrity forced him to report the crime that was about to happen. Chapter 3 introduces us to the assistant to the king. He's the second in charge. His name is Haman. He's only under the king. And Haman is this guy who uses his leadership position to lord it over people. Haman's the guy, everywhere he walks, he requires people to bow down to him. And everywhere he goes, people bow down. And we all know leaders like that. We've all seen leaders who think their position is about themselves. And it's their insecurities come out in full force and everybody basically, whether figuratively or literally, has to bow down to them. And this is Haman. But there's one guy who refuses to bow because his religious convictions don't allow him to bow down to an idol, a statue, or a human. He can show honor, he can show respect, but he will not bow his knee to anyone except Jehovah God. And so every time Haman passes this guy, his name is Mordecai. And he's of the despised Jewish people. Everybody bows and Mordecai will not bow. And so Haman creates a plot and the king actually signs it into law that on a certain day, they picked a day, everybody in the community can take that one day with immunity and kill all the Jews in their community and take their property. Does that sound familiar in history? That was done thousands of years ago, and multiple times throughout history. And so the king signs this as law because of this guy, Haman. And then chapter 4 brings us to 
The fourth character that's important here, the, the new queen, Esther, the orphan girl, the orphan who has been raised by her uncle. And he kind of pushes her into this uh, Persia's Got Talent contest. <laughs> she didn't want to do it, but he pushed her into it. And I understand why no one would want to do this. But once she ends up in that position, she has access to the king, but only if he calls her into his chamber. And he had a long line of people he would call into his chamber. And it had been 30 days since he had called Esther in there. And if you dared walk in there, remember, this is not a Disney king. If you dared walk in there without him personally inviting you, then you basically were killed except on the rare exception that he happened to hold up his golden wand and then you could come in and not die. Now, that takes us to the text we read, the conversation. Mordecai finds out about this new law that this certain day coming up, a few weeks away, everybody is allowed to kill the Jews for one day, 24-hour period, kill all the Jews in your city and take their property. And Mordecai sends a message to Esther and says, would you go to the king and see if this could not happen? And Esther says, I can't do it. He'll kill me. And Mordecai says, hey, through the messenger, you're probably going to get killed anyway. It's not going to go well here for us. Do you think just because you're in the palace that you'll escape? Nobody knows she's a Jew yet, but he's saying they're going to find out. She says, no, I can't do it. He sends a message, please do it. Then she sends the message back. He sends the message, hey, maybe this is why you were even born. Maybe providentially this is why you're where you are. And she sends the message back to Mordecai. Okay, but you fast, and I'll fast, and I'll do it. I'll risk everything, and if I perish, I perish, but at least I'm going to do what's right. Don't you love that? If I perish, I perish. Now, when we talk about leadership in this story, the three kinds of leadership. The first one is positional leadership. Some of you have positional leadership. Some of you don't. All of you will at some point or another at some position. And the king had positional leadership, the authority to make the rules, the authority to make the laws. And here's what I would say. If and when you find yourself with positional leadership, what is so important is that you have the humility to listen. Listen to the people around you. This king had that at some level. He listened a little bit actually to his council and then they got rid of the queen and got a new one. But then eventually he listened, as we'll see in a moment, to Mordecai. If you have positional leadership, learn to listen. Don't think because you're at the top you have all the best ideas. Secondly, there's relational leadership. This is what Mordecai had. Mordecai had no position, no power, no authority, but he leveraged his relationship with the queen to save his people. And finally, there's this thing of providential leadership. Providential, that's the hand of God. And I mentioned, there's, God is not mentioned in this book, but wow, the providence of God is. Think about it. God orchestrating things for his purpose. Vashti rebelling, that was orchestrated by God. Esther Winning this beauty pageant and replacing her. That was orchestrated by God. Mordecai overhearing the plot. Happened to be in the right place at the right time to overhear the plot and, and, and saves the king. 
The fact that that got written down in the history book. One night, it tells us the king couldn't sleep and he said, he snaps his fingers, bring me the history book and just read to me so I can go to sleep. They happened to open the book up to the page that tells the story of Mordecai saving his life. And then the king says, hey, did we ever honor him? No, we didn't. Go find him and let's honor him. And then he walks out in that moment and who happens to be in his courtyard but Haman, the guy who hates the Jews and is going to try to kill them all. And he says, Haman, I want you to go honor this man. Would you go find him and honor him? It reads like a comedy almost. Watching God providentially orchestrate things over and over and over as you read it. The name of God's not mentioned, but the hand of God is all through it. But there's also human responsibility. Mordecai raised his orphaned relative. Mordecai reported the plot Esther agreed to get in the pageant. Esther risked her life. You see, you go through the, yes, there's divine providence, but there's human responsibility. It's theologically rich, although it doesn't mention God. And it solves some of those theological conundrums between God's will and man's free will. Now, to wrap this up, all of us are either in leadership situations or we will be. You might be like the high school girl I talked about earlier. Doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of influence, but wow, there is. You might be like the doctor who walked away from all of his influential positions to go and spend the rest of his life in a developing country, serving people who seemingly aren't that powerful, although he recently did a surgery that no one else would do and saved the life of a high-ranking government official. Doc Demme made his name and made his career by taking the cases no one else would. You know, the kind of cases that say you'll probably be dead in a year, but if we do the surgery, then you could survive this, but the surgery is 90% chance you die on the table. Doctors don't like taking those. Doc Demi always said, I'll take that one. And he had an incredible record because of his skilled hands and the hand of God. And so that's put him even now in the nation where he serves into amazing opportunities, providentially. Every one of you will find times in your life when it seems like God orchestrated everything for this moment. My advice for you is what Esther did. If you perish, you perish, but you have to speak up. I have a friend, not in this nation, in another nation. I won't mention which nation. I don't know who listens to this. I have a friend, a pastor, who disciples a senator. And there was an issue that came up. You know, our church, we're very non-political in the Philippines. We have about, there's seven or eight political parties in the nation, and we have senators in Congress and, and mayors and governors and city councilors from every party imaginable in our church. And so we don't do partisan politics, but we do biblical theology. And there was an issue that was coming up before the Senate that was, had very clear theological issues an issue in that nation that the Bible was extremely crystal clear about the issue. And that senator who had been coming to our church and being discipled by a pastor tweeted something out that stood firmly in the middle of a clearly biblical theological issue. And I called my friend who disciples him, the pastor, and I said, you know what? We don't dabble into politics. We live in theology. And that theology needs to be corrected. The next day, a tweet went out that clearly represented biblical theology. 
As a pastor, I make no apologies about preaching Scripture, even when it contradicts public opinion, public policy, or political correctness. But I don't venture into this political position or that or that, but we have to be faithful to what Scripture says. That, that guy, my friend, like Esther, finds himself in this providential situation with this powerful man. And he, if I perish, I perish. If he never comes back to church, he never comes back to church. But as a pastor, I have to make this a discipleship issue of here's what the Bible says. Every other political issue, let it go, let it go. There are other people who deal with that. But theologically, the job of a person who stands up with Scripture is to say, here's what the Bible says. Now, every one of you have, everyone has relational leadership. From time to time, you will have providential leadership, like my friend Doc Demi, person dying, high-ranking government official in that nation. He felt like God said, take the case. And he realized, if this person dies on this table, I may be kicked out of the country. But providentially, he knew he had to do it. And God spared a life. And God opened up amazing doors for ministry. What's in front of you providentially? What's around you providentially? Speak up to that. Now, last thought, and we'll end this. The Bible is not a leadership book. It's not written for leadership. There are a lot of great leadership books out there. They're all over the place. We can learn a lot about leadership. The Bible is primarily a book so we can get to know God, but it's also a book so we can get to know ourselves, humanity. The Bible calls itself a mirror, and it's like looking in a mirror. And when we look in the mirror, we see ourselves. When we look in the Bible, we see what we're really like, a mirror that shines the light. When I look at this story of Esther, I see what God's like, and I see what humanity is like. And what the story of Esther tells me about humanity is we need deliverance. We're captive, and we can't save ourselves. We need a deliverer, and we need a savior. And what this scripture tells me, this story tells me about God is he sends a deliverer. There he sends Esther. But you know what? There was another time that it all builds up to when the father sent his son as a deliverer. And as surely as Esther walked into a no-win situation as a despised minority in another place, the Son of God came down to earth, living holy in a place that was less than holy, a despised minority Jew in a Roman world, and he goes in and risks it all and pays the ultimate price for every one of us. As we close today, if, as we close this message, if you're new here, you're new to church. You're like me. You didn't really grow up in church. And there's an, you're hearing about Jesus and about a relationship with God. We would love to talk with you and pray with you. There will be people standing right here all along this edge as soon as church dismisses. And if you have any questions about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, they would love to talk to you and show you what Scripture says and pray with you. Also, if you're in a leadership situation and, wow, you don't know what to do, you feel like this is providentially something God's trying to say and use me, and you don't know what to do, somebody's here can pray with you, okay? Lord, thank you for the leadership opportunities every one of us have. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son to pay the ultimate price for us. Help us, Lord, use our leadership positions for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.